0: So in our last post, we alluded to a question that came up that we would address in the next post, and here we are. So this question comes from Pawner1, uh, P-W-N-E-R-1, if I'm pronouncing that right, forgive me if I'm not. But, uh, does the conflict of Ezekiel happen before the tribulation? Seven years of burial, or seven months of burial, seven years of burning equipment of the invaders, uh, making reference to the passages there in Ezekiel 39. Um, when does the conflict described in Ezekiel 38 and 39 take place? Uh, is it before the tribulation? Is it, um, is it after the tribulation? Well, there's a couple of passages that we would want to consider when we try and answer that question. Uh, the, the first passage obviously would be Ezekiel 38 and 39. We're not going to go in depth in that today, but um, we we have in the past talked about it at some length. But we'll we'll point to the passages that that uh, that our viewer is referencing. But I'll, I'd like to start by uh, having you go to Revelation chapter 20 for a minute, because here is one of the reasons why there is, uh, I think, a little confusion about when this takes place. Now, Ezekiel 38 and 39, we're going to read this passage in Revelation 20 in a second, but I want to uh, just set it up a little bit. In Ezekiel 38 and 39, uh, there is a conflict that takes place uh, upon Israel. It's led by a leader referred to as Gog. We uh, first encounter some of these terms, by the way, the, the name Gog, Magog, uh, the various other nations, uh, that are, that are, uh, uh, listed here in Ezekiel 38 that you can read about. They're strange sounding names to us because they just, well, they just sound strange. We're not familiar with them. We don't, we don't, there's no nations today that we know of by these names. Except that these nations still exist, but under more current names. For example, Magog. Uh, seems to imply, based on its geographical, uh, description in, in the scripture, seems to be, uh, speaking to what today would be known as the nation of Russia. Uh, and Gog, therefore, uh, of the land of Magog, Gog would therefore be its leader, uh, its president, premier, whatever the title of that, you know, czar, whatever the title would be of that leader, um, in, in the modern day when this event unfolds. But he's just simply referred to as a leader of, this nation. Uh, you've got uh, Meshach and Tubal. You've got Sheba and Dedan. We've mentioned, we talked about them in the last post. Saudi Arabia is the current location of what is referred to in scripture as Sheba, Sheba and Dedin. Uh Persia, you know, we know that's Iran. Um, Tagarma and, uh, you know, um, we think of, you know, um, the area where the Turkic area and that kind of thing. And so, you know, we look at these um, these names, we don't necessarily find immediate familiarity with them, but when we recognize they're speaking of the ancient names of a people who lived in a certain area, when we look at where that area is today and those people, ultimately that over time sort of grew into that modern day uh, version of them, that helps us understand who's in view. Well, Gog and Magog are mentioned prominently in the passage, uh, throughout that passage, really, as the leader, the, the head of the band of nations and hordes that come against Israel. Um, it is, uh, it is Gog who is, you know, Magog who are by hooks drawing them into this conflict from the farthest reaches of the north and uh, down into Israel, leading these other nations and such. And so, um, they, this is the leadership of that attack against Israel. Well, Gog and Magog are mentioned again, far later uh, in the scriptures. As a matter of fact, in the last book of the Bible, among the final chapters of the Bible, uh, here in chapter 20, verse 7, uh, we see here reference, now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. And it talks about how they then go up against the camp of at Jerusalem, the camp of the saints, uh, where Christ is and everything, and of course their fire comes down, and just devours them, um, you know, immediately. And so, um, it's not much of a conflict. But what's interesting about it is that after the millennium, when Satan is loosed to go and, uh, and, and grab anybody he can, uh, to join him in his final rebellion against Christ, uh, mentioned in that, uh, bringing together is Gog and Magog. And so that has caused some to think that the conflict of Ezekiel 38 and 39 must actually be describing this event here um, in, uh, in in Revelation 20. Now add to that in Ezekiel 30 uh, 39, where it talks about fire coming down from heaven to devour uh you know this 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 attack and everything. It's not like there isn't some reason to think that. There's a connection between these two things, and, and maybe Ezekiel 38 and 39 fits here in, in Revelation 20. I, however, don't hold that view. Uh, I think that the description of the nations, uh, and the specificity of the naming of those nations in, uh, Ezekiel 38, uh, and 39, but Ezekiel 38 really is where, you know, they were first introduced to these nations that are part of this conflict. These nations that are mentioned are all right around the the borders and, of course, then north of and into northeastern Africa as well. These are the nations that are involved in this conflict. They're all right around Israel at the time, and they're specifically named. Um, There's no real sense that this conflict is a global conflict. Reading the passage makes it pretty clear this is a localized conflict. Um, The way that revelation 20 describes satan's going out to gather the nations together against uh against christ in jerusalem and against the camp of the saints and in that including gog and magog um seems uh, the mention of the four corners of the earth you know means that he's going all across the earth to bring these people together from everywhere against uh against the camp of the saints in jerusalem um <clears throat> for starters um the fact that the two, the two, uh, mentions of Gog and Magog are in two different settings that seem to be distinguished by the breadth of the conflict. In Ezekiel 30 and 39, it's localized. In uh, Revelation 20, it's people from all over the world. And it's sort of vague, except for the mention of Gog and Magog. And so, uh, how do we account for Gog and Magog being mentioned again? Well, we don't know for sure. But there does seem to be something underlying this hatred for Israel in Ezekiel 30 and 39 that finds its greatest expression apparently in Gog and Magog, and that may very well be um, somewhat relatedly true again after the millennium. But it doesn't necessarily mean that they're the same conflict, even though a couple of the same players uh, are named. Um, It's not that these same people that are in Ezekiel 38 and 39, those same geographic territories, and for all we know, the same names of those territories, may be true during the millennium and after the millennium. And those residing in some of those areas will maybe be part of that conflict as well. But we don't really know that because it doesn't sort of localize it. It speaks of it being this grand design to bring together people from all over the world, whereas Ezekiel 38 and 39 seems to be very localized, um, just with those nations surrounding her in the Middle East. Now, I will build on why I think that's significant in regard to it being a separate and earlier event than the tribulation period or Daniel's 70th week certainly in regard to the great tribulations last three and a half years of that after Israel's been persecuted uh, driven off to flee for for their for their safety and that as, as even Jesus talks about in, in Matthew 24 um, 15 and beyond um, there is um, I think, going to be a direct connection between the events of Ezekiel 38 and 39, leading to the unfolding of Daniel's 70th week. Daniel's 70th week, if you're not familiar, is that last seven-year period of time that Daniel prophesied in uh, Daniel chapter 9, verses uh, 24 through 27. He does speak of global kingdoms in chapter 2 and the vision that God gave Nebuchadnezzar that Daniel interpreted. And then again, Daniel gets a vision with the same intended meaning, although far more in depth in chapter seven. But the imagery is different, but the the message is essentially the same. Again, with much more detail given to it. But the idea of the the last week, where the uh, this last seven year period of time, where the um, sort of the emerging figure and government arises, described in Daniel chapter seven, takes place. And, and basically, the events of that are, are what are described in, in, in man's final growing rebellion against uh, under Antichrist and God's judgment upon the world. In response to that, that's basically what the bulk of the book of Revelation deals with, the events in Daniel's 70th week. And so, from chapter 6 of Revelation on through chapter 19, when Christ returns... Uh, in verse eleven, um, that description in the book of Revelation is essentially unpacking Daniel's seventieth week in greater detail. Um, now, what is the connection between Ezekiel 30, uh, thirty-nine that conflict in Ezekiel's prophecy and uh, Daniel's seventieth week unfolding? Well, I think again that the events that Ezekiel talks about are intended to be seen as a localized conflict, albeit a dramatic one. Now, again, if we want to go back to um, Ezekiel 39. In chapter 38, we see very clearly how, uh, the nations are named. We see that they sort of, uh, make their position known on this attack. There's all these nations mentioned that come with Russia into attack Israel. Uh, again, Iran, Turkey, Armenia may be in view. Parts of, uh, Western Europe may be in view. Um, you know, Ethiopia, uh, Libya are in view. Uh, Northern Africa. These nations all come against Israel. Um, there are some nations that are on the sidelines. Saudi Arabia is on the sideline. Um, the United States, if we're in view in Ezekiel 38, uh, verse 13, uh, then then we would be on the sidelines in this conflict. And so there's sort of a, you know, anybody who's watching what's going on and who's involved in it um, has sort of a place. You know, they're either in this thing or they're on the sidelines watching. Um, It's interesting to to point out, though, by the way, that all of the nations involved, except for Tarshish and her young lions, are all, uh, again, immediately around and very close to Israel. Um, The one exception, again, being if uh, Tarshish speaks of Britain or maybe Spain, and the young lions or the colonies or offshoots of those nations would be the only exception to that. So, in chapter 39... um, uh, really at the end of chapter thirty eight into thirty nine we begin to see from uh see from god's perspective, what god's going to do in response to this um he, ca- he he sort of draws these nations in ultimately into this conflict and then uh he brings the Lord brings earthquakes and fire comes down from heaven again chapter thirty nine uh um, um, oh, where did I see it just now um I have stuff in my head, but I'm just drawing a blank here right now. Um, uh, oh, goodness gracious, that's embarrassing. I should have probably just put a mark next to it so I could just jump right to it. But let that be of comfort to you. Even people that love to study the Bible a lot sometimes um, draw a blank. Anyway, um, I'll just kind of go back to the end of chapter 38. So, um verse 19 for my jealousy uh and in the fire of my wrath i have spoken surely in that day there shall be a great earthquake in the land of israel so that the fish of the sea the birds of the heavens the beasts of the field all the creeping things that creep on the earth and all men who are on the face of the earth shall shake in my presence the mountains shall be thrown down the steep places shall fall and every wall shall fall to the ground and i will call for a sword against gog throughout my mountains says the lord god Every man's sword will be against his brother and, and will bring to judgment with pestilence and bloodshed. And I will rain down on him, his troops, and on the many peoples who are with him flooding rain, great hailstones, fire, and brimstone. And thus I will magnify myself and sanctify myself and will be known in the eyes of many nations. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. And then he goes on to speak about the destruction of Gog. Uh, there is again this, um, as, as the um, as Potter 1 mentioned, um, uh, verse 9, then those who dwell in the cities of Israel will go out and set on fire and burn the weapons, both the shields and bucklers, bows and arrows and javelins and spears, and they'll make fires with them for seven years. And it goes on to speak about not only that, but even there you find the dead bodies, and they're, for seven months they're burying them and all this kind of thing. And so there is this grand destruction. And again, in, in chapter 38, the passage I read, uh, intentionally so, there is, in that passage, hints that this is has some global implications to it. So that, again, becomes one of the reasons why it is sometimes seen as part of that battle, um, if you would call it a battle, in in Revelation 20, is that, that that is where this takes place, when Gog and Magog are mentioned. Again, I still put more stock in the idea of the specificity of the nations that are in this conflict in chapter 38. However... Uh, Jerusalem is a cup of trembling, uh, not only will be, but already in many respects, and certainly will be more so in the days to come, it will be a cup of trembling for all nations. The way that I think that unfolds at this stage, prior to Daniel's 70th week, is that the conflict that takes place uh, in Israel with these nations attacking her uh does have some very, very uh heavy implications. Now, some people read the description. As a matter of fact, uh, Chuck Missler, any of you who uh uh have have listened to Chuck Missler, I grew up on Chuck Missler early on, um, and loved, loved, loved his ministry. And uh he would talk about these things and and um and and like many people would adopt the idea that maybe there's missiles coming in and, you know, these terms that Ezekiel is using are describing things that haven't been invented in his day yet. And so arrows could speak of missiles, you know, uh, bows could speak of launchers and that kind of thing. Um, and so it's not hard for us on a practical level to say, okay, well, that could be true. And so the kind of warfare we see today might be what's in view in Ezekiel 38 and 39. I, however, um, over the years have developed a little bit different view of that and that's a much more straightforward sense of what's being said. When it talks about earthquakes and fire uh, and and God consuming gog with fire and this kind of thing, um, even like it says in Revelation 20, I think that in Ezekiel 30 and 39 when that scenario unfolds, I think in the days soon coming, um, when that unfolds and God comes to her rescue, I think he's going to do it in very clear, plain, straightforward fashion. I think that he is going to involve himself in this conflict in a way that both his own people and also those who are attacking her know that he's the one getting involved. Um, in, in When Israel became a nation again in 1948, uh, albeit not in belief, um, even they, in unbelief, recognized that clearly they were getting help from somewhere because there's no reason they should have won that conflict. Uh, and many of the subsequent conflicts, too. I mean, nowadays, they're a, you know, sort of a, shh, don't tell anybody, but they're a nuclear power and that kind of thing. Um, but back in the day, I mean, they had hundreds of millions of Arabs who wanted to just destroy them, uh, but they survived and gained land and territory. And so it, it just, uh, even they would recognize that there, there had to be some providential hand upon them in this. Um, in this day, in Ezekiel thirty and 39, I think that it's going to be so abundantly clear that God is getting involved. And he's doing it again because he wants his people to know that he is coming to bat for them because they are his chosen people. Again, rebellious as they have been, stiff-necked as they have been, God has made promises to Abraham that he will hold on to all the way to the very end. He will be faithful even when they are faithless. Um, And he's going to show that to them. Not only that, but he's also, very importantly, going to let the nations know that he is the Lord. And we see these, these, um, sentiments sort of sprinkled throughout the passages that they may know that I am the Lord. He says these things referring both to his own people. And then again, also to the nations around them, attacking them. And even to the nations of the world, um, there will be shaking, uh, throughout the world in this whole kind of a thing. However, um, uh, What's interesting about Ezekiel, by the way, as a quick aside, before I connect the this scenario in Revelation, or the uh, seventh week of Daniel, is that it's after we get through chapter 39 and move into chapter 40 that now we see the millennial kingdom, or the millennial temple, I should say, being, distro- uh, being built, not destroyed, but uh, being described. Uh, so if this were to take place after the millennium, then you would sort of think that maybe the descriptions would be turned around too. Not an ironclad argument I understand fully but it does seem to sort of fall in line with the idea of Ezekiel 30 and 39 coming before the millennium uh, but in any case um, uh, this conflict that takes place uh, in and around Israel uh, Gog and Magog leading the leader of Magog uh, bringing these nations together against her um, I don't know that that's going to be a nuclear conflict there may be nukes involved in it the cleanup that's described may may indicate that there's some kind of uh, that sort of warfare going on. But I would not diminish the fact that the, what I think is the fact that God is going to very visibly make himself known in this conflict. Well, that's going to have repercussions. Most of the world is in disbelief of this God. Uh, m- much of the world is uh, not for Israel and that kind of thing, or at least is laxadaisical about, about her, if not outright against her. There's even people, there's even, uh, you know, believers within the church That that want to make an argument that Israel today has no right to the land and they're not the Israel that is spoken of in Scripture anymore and all this kind of thing. Um, I think there's a huge problem with that because God didn't just promise it to the people that came from from uh, Abraham's uh, family line, but the land itself was also part of that promise, part of that Abrahamic covenant. So, how do they connect? Well, as the world sees God getting involved in this particular conflict in such visible fashion, I think that's going to go a long way to priming them to be ready to receive Antichrist when he comes on the scene. Somewhere in concert with what's going on here, um, Antichrist will come on the scene as a peacemaker. He'll sign a covenant with Israel. Now remember, Israel's in an unbelief, and they by and large will be in unbelief in those days. It's not really until Jesus returns when they finally realize that they've been duped by Antichrist. They call out, uh, according to Hosea, for him to come back, and he returns, that they look upon him and they've pierced, they mourn over him like a, um, you know, like an only son, and this uh mourning over an only son, and and they come to belief, and, and Paul would say, and all Israel will be saved. But up until that point, they're in unbelief. And so, um when this conflict takes place, the world in some way is going to rally around somebody who can make sense of it, who can maybe stand up and represent them against this God. The same uh, God may actually um, be rightly recognized as the reason why millions of people have disappeared in the rapture. They'll have to make sense of it somehow, and there may be alien explanations or that kind of thing there's a part of me that wonders if it won't need any other explanation, it'll be the rapture and people of the world who are against this God, who are still firmly footed against him, um, will just simply want to resist him because he took all these people away and this kind of thing. It just will firm them up in their pride and arrogance against him. We'll see. I mean, what, you know, when it happens, we'll understand. I mean, I think we'll, you know, whether we see it or not, we'll, I don't know, but, Um, But the idea that, um, that the world is going to be between the rapture of the church that either takes place before or after Ezekiel 38 and 39, I don't really know. I'm obviously hopeful it happens before, but we don't know for sure. But between the the idea of of the events of Ezekiel 38 and 39, the rapture of the church, the world is going to be uh, stammering and clamoring for somebody to step up and make sense of this and stand before them, and maybe even stand before them against this God, should he ever decide to do something else among the world of men. Um, That may sound far-fetched, but you will remember how when um, in Revelation 13 there is mention about the the Antichrist having a purported resurrection from the dead, and as some some fatal blow is issued to him, and he dies and comes back, or at least seems to be dead and comes back, uh, he has supernatural power. The false prophet, alongside of him, has supernatural power, and so at some point, the people become so enamored with him that they begin to say things like, "Who is like the beast? Who can make war with him?" Uh, that may be indicating, uh, of a, indicative of a world that is one last time sticking its chest out to God and saying, not your will be done, but mine. As they stand behind this leader who they think will be able to actually take on um, this God should he ever intervene again. And no doubt, uh, people then will be aware of this idea of the second coming. And when Jesus returns, what are they doing? But he, having received power from the nations around him, having received authority, stands before them in this rebellion against Christ at his return, and it's ended quickly, but the world is so audaciously, pridefully brainwashed and conditioned that they actually believe they're going to stand with Antichrist against him. Uh, we read about this a little bit in Psalm 2, and he who sits in the heavens laughs at such uh, lunacy to think that, that, that man would try to rise up against his, uh, against his God. His creator, and such. So I think that the events of Daniel's 70th week unfold in part in relation to or even response to the events of Ezekiel 38 and 39, as well as you could throw in potentially the rapture as well. I think we are raptured away before Antichrist comes on the scene. So I would think that um, either the rapture will happen at any moment now, and I believe it could, Or maybe it comes after Ezekiel 38 and 39 during some brief period of time between that and Daniel's 70th week. These are just my musings. This is just where I'm coming up with looking at the Scripture. I am finding myself more and more taking the Scripture at face value on some of these things. Uh, if we believe that fire comes down and consumes this rebellion after the millennium, I don't think it's so far-fetched to think that God does the same thing here in Ezekiel 38 and 39 to sort of set the stage for the fact that he is once again intervening very obviously and overtly in the affairs of men as human history comes to a close in the, you know, certainly seven years, Daniel's 70th week, but then whatever amount of time between Ezekiel 38 and 39 included in that uh, prior to that. So, Anyway, so that is my thought. That is, that's, that's where I'm coming from in response to your question, Ponder1. It's a great question. Of course, it, uh, is always good to consider these last day's events and piece together how they might come together. None of us knows for absolute sure, uh, on these things, but I think that's a reasonable response to it. So, take that as you will, and, and hopefully it helps. So, But uh, thanks for the question, and if uh, any of y'all have questions, thoughts, uh, any of that kind of thing, feel free to share them in our comments section on our YouTube channel, uh, or if you want to go to my website at parsonspad.com, you can also interact there and watch these videos there as well. Um, uh, if you want to email me, you can email me at uh, uh, Pastor brian at calvarychapelfranklin.com. And as always, if you're anywhere around Franklin on a Sunday morning, we'd love to have you come out and pay us a visit. So hope to see you sometime. But in any case, may the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you and give you peace forever. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the hope of what is all coming and the fact that one day soon we'll see you, we'll be with you. Jesus will come and get his bride and we'll be home. And then we'll come back with him to set up that kingdom and to serve and to be part of his purposes and plans during that period of time. And then ultimately, finally, one day will be an eternity uh, with a new heavens and a new earth and all of these grand, phenomenal promises that you've given us. So thank you, Lord. We love you and praise you for all that you've told us about what is coming. We thank you for what's unfolding before our eyes. We thank you for what yet lies ahead. And thank you for putting us uh, and holding us in your hands and in your plans. So thank you, Father. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.